Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Tides podcast. In each episode, we invite guests to have honest conversations about their mental health journeys with the goal of destigmatizing mental health within the Asian American Pacific Islander community. Due to the nature of the podcast, we'll be discussing a variety of mental health topics and possibly triggering experiences. While we and the majority of our guests are not trained professionals, we encourage you to practice self-care while listening and seek professional guidance if you or a loved one is in need of support. With that said, let's start the episode. Hello, my name is Laura Yu, and I describe my mental health journey as learning how to ride the waves. Hello, and welcome to the Chaining Tides podcast. I am your host, Matthew Yonamura. Welcome to episode six. Hope everyone's been doing well. It's been a very warm week in Southern California, and I have been sweaty again. But hey, it's all good. Just think it means I'm hydrated, right? If I still sweat so much. But anyways, that's not the point of the podcast. Sorry, I've done two episodes now where I start by talking about how sweaty I am. But uh we have a really exciting interview for this podcast. This, uh, when we came across this guest, I went down her social media and her the stuff that she works on, she really preaches on her social media. And it really helped me get more comfortable in my own skin and my own body because of the body positivity that she preaches and that she helps with her clients. Uh, we, recorded, we also recorded this episode a while back uh, when the anti-Asian hate crimes had really become prevalent on social media. Um, so this is a discussion that took place a while ago and maybe was more quote-unquote relevant, but obviously it's still very much so has impact today because anti-Asian hate crimes, anti, anti-person of color hate crimes haven't stopped just because maybe the media or you don't see it on your social media as much. So... Uh, I think that discussion still carries weight today and it's an ongoing fight against racism against the AAPI community and other BIPOC communities as well. Um, with that said, this person is an anti-diet dietitian, which might be a new term for people, might sound confusing, anti-diet dietitian, but I will let the guest explain it because she does a much better job in the interview than I ever could at explaining what she does because it's her career. It's not mine, and also uh, she's kind of what you might call an expert on the topic. Um, she also discusses the intersectionality between mental health with food, with diet culture, with race, with gender, and so much more. And I think it's really amazing the way she connects the way that food plays such a role on our mental health and the way the health community is, well, quite frankly it's very white and she is doing a great job at trying to break that barrier for people of color in the health community she also offers her story about her upbringing and childhood which has been one of the motivators for her career today to help others Uh, but with that in mind please note that this episode does discuss a person living with suicidal thoughts and behaviors so for your own sake please be mindful of that if you choose to continue listening you could skip to the next episode or just be mindful of that for your own sake of mind. But with that said, I am extremely excited to show the interview that we had with Laura. 
Laura, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a much anticipated interview for the rest of the crew. Um, everyone over at Changing Tides is super excited about this one. Um, so I'd like to start by asking you about describing it as riding the wave. Uh, it ties into Changing Tides perfectly, um, but do you mind describing uh, why you would use that to describe your mental health journey? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I also agree. I think it very much fits into changing tide theme. Um, and some of the things I have struggled with is anxiety, depression, and PTSD. Um, and in my experience, I've learned just that life is never stagnant and it's always ebbing and flowing. It's filled with a range of emotions. And sometimes that's that means the sadness lingers longer and just as much as the joyful parts of life linger longer. Um, and whenever I've experienced an episode of depression, I've I often try to remind myself that it's just another wave and like all waves, it will pass and you just have to write it out with hopefully the coping tools and support. I love it. Uh, I lo uh, you've been super candid on social media and I, you've been candid in other interviews and articles you've written, but uh, just for the sake of our audience, um, I'd like to start at the beginning of your story. Um, you have opened up on your Instagram um, about your life and family. Uh, so do you mind sharing a bit about your life growing up? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and, you know, I think that context is so important and so much of life is a series of domino effects. So before I dive into my childhood, uh, if it's okay, I'd like to share a little bit of background about my parents um, and, the and the hardships that they, great, they faced because that greatly impacted my life growing up. And it's not something that I really understood until I was much older. So I, I'll be likely jumping between my childhood lens and my current lens. Um, so my parents, they were both born in China. Um, my mom was born into a pretty well-off family. Her grandfather was a doctor. And when the communists took over, they took everything from my mom's family. Um, they stripped them of their names and titles. And my grandfather, her grandfather, so my great-great-grandfather was forbidden to practice medicine. And I don't know the full details because I don't have many living relatives, but I know that he ended up committing suicide. And I share that because it goes to show just some of the generational trauma that often gets left out of the conversation. And I mean, I'm not even talking about, um, I'm not talking about famine or, or food insecurity, which, which is traumatic in and of itself. There's just so many layers here, but this is just some of the insight as to why one, advocating for mental health is so important in the Asian community and two, the cultural shame um, that makes seeking help so hard. Um, and genetics is a factor as to why someone might be at greater risk for developing depression. Um, and so fast forward, fast forward, my parents escaped from China uh, with my oldest brother and sister uh, to start a new life, um, like so many others. Um, then they had three daughters in America, one being myself. And so in total, I, I have three other sisters. And I grew up in Philadelphia um, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom and my dad worked his way up to be a manager at like several restaurants um, and he would work like six days a week and come back for one or two days and on reflection I don't um, I didn't know him as well as I thought that I did as a child because he wasn't really around and he was a man of very few words um, and he had battled with alcoholism and addiction to gambling uh, so my childhood is super complicated in that both my parents passed when I was really young, like when I was nine or 10. So you don't have that many like clear memories of them. But of my memories, 
of my mom, uh, who did raise us for some time. Um, I remember her being like super loving and super thoughtful in the way that she cared for us. Uh, and I also remember that she was very sick. Um, specifically, like one of my core memories as a child was when in first grade, uh, she went to the dentist's office and when she came back, I think the procedure had really gone wrong. Um, but that was the day where she could like really no longer physically eat. So she would eat like boiled crackers and plain noodles and this lasted for four years and she became very malnourished. And that's part of the reason why I'm so passionate about like my, my work as a dietitian. Um, in those four years uh, where she was very ill, I remember traveling back and forth to New York City with my mom in search of like the best doctors that could help her. And when I reflect back on that as an adult now, it's so painful to know that no one picked up on the fact that she was suffering from depression. Um, and I didn't question it because it was my normal. And the fact that mental health isn't something that's really acknowledged, wasn't really acknowledged during that time. And there's just so much shame within the Asian culture to even recognize it as like a real valid thing. Um, it's, it's like always in like hindsight, right? Like retrospect, like 20, vision 2020. Um, but what I learned much later was that I had a brother who had died before I was born and he was murdered when he was 17. Um, not long after my parents had immigrated here. So even like before I was born, I was just like, I was born into all this trauma that had preceded, preceded my life. And I'm like left putting together all of the pieces that she suffered from depression. And I, and I really believe that she was so depressed that like she stopped eating and became so malnourished that like her suicidal ideation increased. Um, and then on reflection, I remember my mom many times trying to commit suicide um, during those years. And I don't think I really knew exactly what was happening or to even ask for help or advocate for her again, because I was a child. Um, but if I, if, certainly if I knew then what I know now, like things would be very different. I just remember her crying a lot and telling my dad that she didn't want to live and then being totally functional, uh, capable of making me lunches and hosting visitors. And like, that's the scary part of mental illness is that like, it's so hard for anyone to really see what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, I remember one day in October, um, I was maybe like nine or 10. And I had a dream, literally a dream of a man in a white suit and he was in my living room. And he was telling me that he kept just saying over and over, like, it, it's time, it's time. And in like a very comforting way, but when I woke up, I knew that something was like so wrong. And I told my sisters my dream. And they told me that our brother was dressed in a white suit during his funeral. And it's not something that I could have known. Um, and that's like part of like my own spiritual beliefs is that like, I feel like there's definitely like some type of higher power because that morning, like when I woke up, I mean, I saw the things that my mom had laid out to take her life. And I confronted her and she told me she wouldn't do it. Um, and, and I have so much compassion truthfully for her because when someone's struggling with a mental illness, likelihood is that they are gonna lie, not because they want to, but because it's like a mechanism. And um, though she told me she wouldn't do it, it was like after the holidays shortly into the new year, she did. Um, and so my life like pretty much went, you know, I flipped 180 after that we moved out of our, out of our home and moved into a 
two bedroom apartment. It was my dad and, and my sisters at that time. And it was awful conditions. It was like mice infested. And it was, I, I guess I had hoped that my dad would stop gambling and drinking, but he never did. And in fact, he grambled everything that we had. Um, my oldest sister, she wasn't living with us at the time. She was living on her own and she ended up um, taking my sisters and I out of that living situation. So we moved in with her and her husband um, who, who, I mean, this is another, this could be a whole nother conversation, but, but he's white. And that brought on like another experience of being raised around like white saviorism. Um, and I mean, it's truthfully part of the reason why I am vocal about a lot of different topics. Uh, and shortly after that move, my dad died of a heart attack. And so I lived in Virginia with my oldest sister and her husband for about five years. And to be honest, it wasn't a bad childhood. I, I, I did have a childhood at that point, but it also, uh, in my adult life, I've had to put in a lot of work to heal from the years that I lived with them as well. And um, yeah, without going into like too many details around that, it's like, Imagine like losing your parents and then being told numerous times that like no one wanted to take care of you and that you owed you owed this person. Um, and it's like for the slightest thing, it was like if I didn't say thank you for something as simple as being picked up from school, it was like I'd received a silent treatment for days. So again, like this like whole theme of like not expressing your emotions, suppressing them, it's like so another reason why advocating for mental health is important because it's incredibly harmful. It's harmful at worst, dangerous at best. Um, and, and so I'm really glad that like we're able to have this conversation to like help break some of that silence around it and, some of, and remove hopefully some of the shame around someone's family history and their experiences. Um, and it, I mean, just got to a point during my childhood where um, there was so much, like the silence went on for like a year. My brother-in-law didn't speak to me. And at that point it reached a time where I no longer wished to live with them because I, you know, you know, what's normal until at least oftentimes for a child, you, you think, you know, what's normal until you start to observe that that is in fact not normal. And I really remember that like there was one night where I let them know that a friend's parents offered to let me live with them until I, until I finished high school, like someone, someone wanted to take care of me. Um, and so I asked if it was okay that I, if that I move in with them for the time being. And it was like all hell broke loose, like as if I was like the least grateful child. And, um, and yeah, and so like, I, I had to leave the house the next day. And my third sister who was also living there, she was, um, who I'm very, very close to, she was supposed to start college in just a few, few weeks. And as a consequence of my choice, they kicked her out, kicked her out as well. Um, and said that like, oh, it would be a reminder of me essentially. Uh, so we have a very like complex relationship, even with like my immediate family. Um, and I do want to be very clear that, that I'm very grateful for my sister who took care of us and took us out of that dangerous environment. And I think that she herself had experienced so much trauma and the difference in age made it so hard to connect. And that being said, like families are so tricky and navigating relationships are tricky. And there is a part of me that still just holds a lot of compassion for her. Um, and that led me to like, my next next phase of life of uh, moving into Brooklyn, I, I ended up living with my oldest, my second oldest sister. I have a lot of sisters, so it's hard to it's hard to keep track. <laughs> but my second oldest sister in Brooklyn, she became my legal guardian. Uh, so I went to uh, I finished off high school there, um, and then 
I mean, it's just like one of the happiest times I'd been in a really long time. Um, and by some miracle, I got into NYU. And then that kind of led me down this like whole career path. So many thoughts. First off, uh, thank you for sharing your story um, because it's so important for ourselves and for anyone else listening to know that opening up that dialogue and be comfortable with it yourself, it's it's going to be able to help you as, long, as well as others, especially in a practice like yours. Um, I, I just can't begin to be so grateful for people like you who are so vocal about sharing your story and for going on to help others. Um, I don't want to stay on, you know, your your background and your difficult upbringing because there's so much more than our trauma. Uh, you're so much more than your trauma. We all are. And I, I, I it helped to lay the foundation for where you are now. But just uh, before moving on from it, I am I am a little bit curious about coping mechanisms that you did practice while struggling with the loss of your parents, um, how you're able to battle through these tough times and how, how did this all help you find your passion for mental health? Yeah. Yeah. It's such an interesting question because I don't actually recall having any overt coping mechanisms as mm. a child. Like I met with a school counselor once. And then other than that, like no one in my life expressed their feelings. So my unhealthy, I would say that my unhealthy mechanism was that I likely suppressed everything and channeled all of my energy into academics. And then I'm, I, I believe I began to grieve my parents' death when I was in my mid twenties. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when I really felt like the physical effects of not having those healthy coping mechanisms. And so I began uh, working with a therapist. I opened up to my sisters. I journaled, did yoga as like a physical form of the therapy work. Um, so my coping toolbox definitely expanded during that time. I'm glad to hear it. And I think I, I, I do appreciate the candidness of even saying that you were suppressing and your coping mechanisms weren't healthy because it does help you to realize when you sometimes when you reach that point, it makes you realize you have to climb up out of it and you have to find those better coping mechanisms. Um, but so I, I, I am so glad to hear that you found that toolbox, you expanded it because fast forwarding to your career now, which is multifaceted and empowering in so many different ways. You're like, again, I, we're so happy to have you as a guest on this podcast. Um, but can you explain what you do specifically as an anti-diet dietitian. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's a very, uh, can be a new term for many people. Mm -hmm. And the short answer would be that I help humans move away from chronic dieting um, and find compassionate ways to take care of themselves in hopefully a way that feels authentic to them. Um, generally speaking, I think it's for the most part that when someone thinks of a dietitian, they're thinking about someone who's going to help them lose weight. Uh, and most, and, and that is the total opposite of what I work on with someone. In fact, I'm most of the time encouraging someone to focus on what can they add to mm. their life? What can they add in terms of, um, food, bringing in their cultural identity as part of the conversation. And, and most people, to be honest, come to me after years of dieting, trying to shrink their bodies, trying to fit into what would be a thin white ideal body. Mm. And that's because most of the time they've been fed messages that their body is wrong and harmful. 
And restriction often leads to increased anxiety, increased risk for eating disorders, preoccupation with, with food and body. And I just consider it to be like one of the greatest forms of distraction and a common coping mechanism um, for parts that have been unhealed. Hmm. And I just think that everyone just deserves to feel at peace with food in their body. And ever since I've come across your practice, because it was a new term for me, my idea of healthy has completely changed because I've learned that it is about having this healthier relationship with food. It's about restricting. It's about how can I do all this to lose weight? But really, it's it's become so much for me about how do I, how, how not restricting my body of food or nutrients or whatever it might be. It's just how do I make myself have a healthier idea of my, my food I'm eating? Um, But go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say that like part of that is the work to Mm -hmm. help someone shift the way they think about health because there's so much more nuance to it. And there's so many other layers to what health means health is not always attainable for everyone. Um, there's so many barriers to it. We, we take into consideration financial barriers, access mm-hmm. to food, and my work is centered around bodies. And at the core of it, it's helping people respect, honor, and feel safety in their bodies. And that is a lot of the reason why I do speak up about um, racism, because it's so much more complex than just health. Um, we have to view it from an intersectional lens. Um, and I, I listen to patients describe their capacity to feel safe in their bodies. And that requires that I consider race. It requires that I consider gender, uh, sexual orientation, religion, um, in order to facilitate the healing. And that idea, uh, the intersection of it all, that's, that's something that you have been candid about. And that's something about, uh, it's part of the journey. Uh, it's and it, it, it's a journey to develop this healthier relationship with food. It's going to take twists and turns. Um, can you tell me a bit about what inspired you to learn more about intuitive eating and why exactly you preach it? Because with with diets, it's very much so. This is the diet. It's not much of a journey. It's it's cut, clear cut here. So can you talk a little bit about this? So true with dieting. A diet plan often gives someone something tangible Mm -hmm. to hold on to. And I think as humans, we really crave that. We want to know what the answer is and when is it going to happen? But reality is that like so many other parts of life, it doesn't play out that way. So I think when people are trying to seek control around food, they're doing it for a reason. And it's hard to accept that um, it's going to be one of those things like with twists and turns. And I mean, the real core, one of the core parts of why I am so passionate and I preach intuitive eating and anti-diet is because dieting is the number one predictor of developing an eating disorder, which falls under mental health and wellness. It's also um, the mental illness that has the highest mortality rate. Um, And it's not talked about enough. I mean, when the fact that society praises weight loss behaviors, the same behaviors that would be criteria for diagnosing an eating disorder, that's so problematic. Um, and it, and it needs to be talked about more. And 
again, like, because it's tied into mental health, it's like it increases depression, anxiety. And when I reflect on my mom, I think that, yeah, that she was to a point where she was so malnourished that it severely impaired her cognitive function. And I see that a lot in patients where they, they diet and they get to this point. I don't see a gray area there. I mean, if a diet is harmful, then it's harmful. Mm -hmm. you've, you've touched on this already, which I love because it really nails down the idea of this intersection between mental health, diversity, health, like uh, food, all these things, this intersection, it's become very clear. Um, and that's why, you know, I want to talk about how you've been an advocate for diversity within the health field. You talked about this white ideal health. Um, and even specifically within the anti-diet and intuitive eating subculture of health, there's this whitewash lens of it. Uh, can you share some of the um, challenges in entering a space that has not historically included many folks in the AAPI community? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a good question. I'm really glad that you're uh, you're asking that. Um, to not see myself represented in institutions where I was trained in, and even to this day, like when I'm in conferences or in webinars, right? Like even in a Zoom conference, like it's hard. It's really hard. I'm acutely aware that I'm often the only Asian in the room, and um, the the nutrition dietetics field is vastly white, meaning like the Academy of Nutrition recently just posted that 90% of the field is white. And so the breakdown of that is even only 4% are AAPI and 4% in the US of all practicing registered dietitians are, are just 4%. And that really speaks to the very like systemic barriers that make it hard for Asians and really all BIPOC clinicians to even enter the field. Um, being trained by white dietitians, like that led me into thinking that Asian food is, and I say this like in quotes, like quote unquote unhealthy and that like kale is the way to go. And I'm so glad that I came out of that narrative because that itself is so harmful. Like cultural foods are so important. You can, there's so much erasure already. I mean, there's, there's historical erasure of like Asian food. And so like here in 2021, it's all the more important, at least to me as a provider to encourage someone to include those foods into their daily life and to be able to know that it's okay to eat the foods that you grew up with, like white rice and noodles and mm -hmm. without, without white people vilifying it and to suggest that these foods are quote unquote bad, it's very all or nothing thinking. And it's mm -hmm. just not helpful. It, it also fuels a lot of like the ED dialogue that someone might be battling inside. And to broaden the scope, you know, we're, we're recording this the week where we, there's been this larger dialogue around anti-Asian sentiment and xenophobia, especially surrounding the Asian community. Um, we were talking a little bit before we started filming this about this anti-Asian sentiment and how we're both trying to navigate how to react, how to respond. And part of you being so vocal about this subject, I wanted to hear a little bit of your thoughts about this anti-Asian sentiment in the U.S. right now? Yeah, uh, to be honest, I'm having quite a lot of feelings um, and that this is something that, you know, as for you too, I'm, I'm, I'm sure of that. Like I would imagine for anyone really listening that it's impacting um, them deeply as well. And I'm going to do my best to answer your question. And, and I'm going to name it right now that I'm also having a lot of feelings around it. Um, and 
really like I'm in the midst of trying to make room in my heart uh, to process something that I would also encourage other people and other listeners to give yourselves time to do the same, that there is no rush to have to um, process all of these things and educate yourselves on what's going on because everyone truthfully is just trying their best and we all have our jobs and our life to live. Um, I do think that it is such an important conversation to have because I I see very pitting views um, of what's going on, right? There's, I mean, we also need historical context here that there has been a division in the Asian community and the black community. And, it, and I would encourage anyone who's listening to, I mean, Google's your best friend um, during these times, like to mm-hmm. look up like, um, gosh, what to look up, could look up like the model minority myth, start there. Like that pits us against black communities so much. Right. Um, and then to look up like racial triangulation theory as well. Like these are really two core concepts to even begin with. Um, but at the end of the day, like, racism is racism. You are not, uh, in my opinion, this is just one, one of you to offer, but if you cannot be selectively anti-racist, right? It's not one of those things where there is really nuance in the discussion. And it's not okay, in my opinion, to condemn the Black community for something for something that an individual does. It needs to be just seeing the individual act as it is. And that at the end of the day, no one, Black community is not benefiting from being pitted against us. And it's not the Asian community. The only, the only group of people that actually benefit from this is white supremacy. And like to remember that, even when, when the ego comes, shows up and, and wants so, so greatly to, again, like have an answer, blame someone for mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you did nail, you did nail it for me. It's, I'm trying to navigate it. Obviously, we all know that this is incorrect. It's horrible. But figuring out how we react and how you could describe the feeling of this it's very nuanced. It's it's hard to nail down exactly how to feel about this these acts of white supremacy. It's it's that simple. Um, I'm looking at your social media now, which we'll plug because it is there's so much content there that helps everyone could help anyone get through their day. But uh, you said that recall that the divide is not what strengthens us. It has and always will be found in solidarity, and it's exactly this whole sentiment around anti-racism. It's not specific to a certain creed or a certain member of the BIPOC community. It's always about just, it's racism is racism. So um, I just wanted to mention that because of this conversation around the AAPI community. And because um, if I could go ahead and uh, segue this into the next question I had for you, you you have and always you have always been very vocal about being an ally to the black community as you just were. Um, can you talk about going to bat for the black community while being a non-black woman of color, and what led you to speak up? Um, why are these conversations are important to have? Yeah, um, I mean at least in my own 
experience, I've always felt, a, I mean, a greater connection, a deep connection with the Black community because mm. I grew up in a Black community. Mm. Um, and I mean, that is so, there's some division between that and even observing the few relatives that I, that I excuse me, had who um, would make very clear anti-Black statement mm. growing up, right? And so that is something that I think it's really important to acknowledge that as Asians, we also have a lot of collective work to do to, to bring forward um, these ongoing conversations and not be so quick to, to make blanket statements or blanket posts or um, advocate blindly. Like we, and, and sorry, excuse me, because that, that is actually like an ableist um, statement. Um, what I would hope to convey is that we need to examine our history before we are quick to move forward. That is why it's so important to take time to educate ourselves. Because it's not something that, I mean, it wasn't certainly something in my history books that I learned about. Right. Like we might know this, we might experience the racism, but this is new. I mean, we, this is like coming out of the shadows that we are like at a time where we're able and encouraged to speak up. And that's something that I would really like for for, for anyone listening to know that it is okay to condemn anti-Blackness and also advocate for our community. Mm -hmm. um, and it really started, I mean, I got I kind of almost got to like pay some dues to, the, to this person because I mean, a few years ago before the racial unrest, I was invited to join an Instagram pod. I don't know if you're familiar with, with that, but it's basically like a group of, of people that come together and support each other. Oh, okay. And one of, one of these people was Rachel Cargill, and she is a fierce uh, leader um, and um, just a wonderful human being. And I've learned so much from her in all those years. And it really taught me that it's so important to just speak on what matters. It, it mattered less to me if I lost followers. It mattered less to me if, I, if it didn't match my brand. That's all noise anyway. And... And then as a non-Black woman of color, yeah, it was a lot of microaggressions and a lot of this like not believing or being gaslit within my within the dietetics field. And then the racial unrest happened. It seems like there's just like this mutual understanding of, yeah, you're coming to my page. We are gonna talk about race. We're gonna talk about nutrition. And we're going to talk about how fat phobia has its roots, uh, its origins and anti-Blackness. Um, so yes, I do use social media as a tool to speak up on on topics that matter to me. And it's not something that I think that I deserve kudos for. I think it's something that I believe we should all be doing to dismantle white supremacy. I I truly wish I could add on to that, but you kind of, <laughs> I wish I had a segue or to could lead to another question, but that sums it up perfectly in my book. Because um, to bring it back to the question I asked about this anti-Asian sentiment going on right now, you, we, as we've been saying, it's about anti-racism. You could advocate for the black community while advocating for our own AAPI right. community. BIPOCs were 
it's all about lifting each other up. It's in solidarity. So that's the only thing I really feel yeah, like I add to that. Exactly. And when we lift up the black community, we lift up everyone. Exactly. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> you, you I'm telling you, I, I've been excited for this, this conversation. Um, but, you know, through your work, through your advocacy, through everything that you're doing, how do you make sure to take care of your own mental well-being as you've been helping others? That is an ongoing practice of checking in uh, with myself. And it can be in like the seemingly little things during the day, like noticing my breath. Like, is it stagnant? Is it short? Am I getting enough sleep? Asking myself, like, what do I need? Hmm. Um, and then there's, of course, like the importance of, at least to me, disconnecting from screens because we're on calls all the time and, and just social media in general. And uh, yeah, I, I'm very high functioning and sometimes I forget that. It's very, it's very easy to almost like, to think that it's the overwhelm from work rather than just like being a human in general is just hard. Yeah. Um, and it's really important to validate those moments uh, and meet myself with compassion. For sure. I. I really enjoy hearing all of it. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you're more than your trauma. You're more than the anti-diet dietitian, more than your practice. So I love to hear that. I think it's important to hear that while you're doing all this work, you're making sure to check in with yourself because we are our own individuals. So I thank you for your work, but I also thank you for making sure that your own mental well-being is up to par with what you're preaching. Um, I could go on and on about all this, and I, but I would encourage anyone listening to go to your Instagram, which we'll tag, because a lot of your practice and a lot of what you preach is all on there. Uh, they could have gained the admiration that I have for you. Um, but before we go to this quick fire round where I just want to ask you some fun questions, uh, is there anything you'd like to say before we jump to that? Uh, yes. The, first off, thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. It was really an honor to be on here and speaking with you. And uh, thank you so much for all of the great work that Changing Tides is doing, has been doing for the community. Um, and that is actually one of the highlights of, of social media is just being able to connect with like-minded individuals like yourselves. Um, and then just a note to like anyone who, who has been listening, um, I would invite you all to think about what might you need after listening to this conversation? I know I brought up a lot of things that might be um, something that might elicit some emotions for you yourselves and to notice that and intend to yourselves in any way that feels, feels good to you. Um, and then if someone, if anyone is struggling with mental health, like please know that it's really important to not deal with this alone uh, and don't wait for it to get worse before you ask for help. Um, something that I commonly see in my patients and I've experienced firsthand is this sort of thinking, oh, it's not that bad, right? Like, the, and I say that in quotations because that statement is so harmful. And to know that even on the one-off days or one-off hours that you, you feel like that is like, that is enough to validate your pain um, and that you deserve to, to have support uh, and to be seen. Um, and all of that is valid. Sure. Thank you so much. Um, I, I, I'm speechless. I don't have much more to say to add on to that. But 
If you're ready to jump into this um, quick fire round, I have some quick fun ones just so our audience could get to know you a bit. Yeah, yeah, oh, I'm ready cool. for it. <laughs> cool, so uh, I, I made sure to stray away from using words like um, cheat meal because there, there really isn't, there, there shouldn't be a cheat meal. It should just be, what's your, so I, instead I'm asking you for this particular question, what is your go-to dessert, your favorite dessert? Oh my gosh. Well, first off, I, I really appreciate that you, you did your research. <laughs> and we're, yeah, we're being uh, very thoughtful about like the language we're using around food. Um, gosh, my favorite dessert would have to be Hmm. It's not as quick fire around, is it? Because I like so many <laughs> things. Um, I would say I really enjoy carrot cake. Oh, yeah. With the cream cheese frosting. Oh, it's, it's slept on because it's carrot cake, but it's so good. <laughs> I know. So good. <laughs> it's all about the frosting. <laughs> um, what is your favorite state specific food? So if that if that's unclear, like New York style, California style, oh something gosh. specific. Yeah. Okay. So in New York, if anyone is ever in Brooklyn, they need to visit. It's called Brado's, B-R-A-D-O, apostrophe S. And uh, it's like this thin crust pizza. And it's like, I mean, I really love chips. So honestly, it reminds me of like that same texture. Hmm. And I get it every week, if not, <laughs> if not like multiple times in a week. But it's like my go-to meal. Okay. Love yeah. it. Uh, I, for one, and more, I, this is, might be controversial, but I love a good Chicago deep dish. I lived in Chicago oh, for yeah. college. Uh, if you haven't had the chance, it's definitely the polar opposite of that chip style pizza, but in case you're in Chicago. I yeah, that sounds, that sounds really good too. <laughs> um, what is your favorite part about living in New York? Mm, it's the diversity. Yeah, because it's just like no other. It's I love seeing people who look like me. I love eating food made by like various cultures. It's just one of the coolest places, even during the pandemic, I guess. <laughs> I know. And speaking yeah. of the pandemic, and even though you, I, I know you love New York, when traveling is a thing again, what's the next place that you, you want to visit? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I would love to go to Greece. Hmm. Yeah, it's always been on my list. Um, hopefully, it'll be back on there. <laughs> hopefully soon. Hopefully yeah. sooner than later. Yeah. Um, if you could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would they be? Oh wow! I, you know, I anticipated this question was coming. <laughs> and I was like, who am I going to invite to this dinner that I don't even know if I'm having? As a, um, oh, I could go sappy or I could go fun. Um. If I could have, could I have two dinners? <laughs> could I have two dinners? Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> if I could have two dinners, I would want, <laughs> I'd honestly want to have dinner with my mom as mm-hmm. an adult and my brother and my dad and just like have a whole family party. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if I could have a fun party, um, it would be Beyonce, Barack Ooh. Obama, AOC. Um, gosh, who else could be the other two? Maybe Michael Jordan, because I just watched his, do- like, I've been watching his documentary. And that was just like, it's just, if you get hooked, just be uh-huh. careful. Like a, you could watch the whole thing in a weekend. I know. Um, and then what would it be? Is that four? That's myself? Four. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I love it. That's a powerful, great, that, what, a, what a dinner. Yeah. <laughs> both of them, both of them, great dinners. Um, 
What do you miss most about pre-COVID life? Mm, I miss seeing my friends because I took COVID, I take COVID very seriously. I took the pandemic and quarantining very seriously. And um, yeah, my friends and my sisters, honestly. Mm. And then to round out this quick fire round, uh, if you could give advice to yourself from five years ago, what would it be? Mm. That vulnerability is strength. Mm. And to not be afraid to speak out, because that is something that, um, that is scary, scary. And uh, it took practice and time, but it feels authentic. Yeah, I love it. That's a beautiful way to end this interview. Uh, Laura Yu, thank you so much for joining the podcast and sharing your story, sharing your practice, and just for taking the time with us. Thank you so much, Matthew. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again to Lori Yu for joining us, sharing about her mental health story, about what it means to be an anti-diet dietitian, about body positivity, about a healthier relationship with food, about anti-Asian hate crimes, about bringing up other BIPOC communities and everything else that we talked about. Laura was an amazing guest, is an amazing human, and it was such an honor for me to talk to her. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to our show for our episode releasing on every other Tuesday. Give us a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. If you would like to support our podcast and help us grow, you can do so with a donation at the link at the bottom of the episode description. To hear more about Changing Tides, follow us on Instagram at LTSC underscore Changing Tides or check out our website, thechangingtides.org. Let's continue to change the tides on mental health. We got